I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 20th, 2012. Coming up, we're going to be talking with Dr. Bernie Krauss about his 40-year quest to record, preserve, and understand the soundscapes of whole ecosystems. Bernie has had a remarkably diverse career in sound. Before his work in soundscapes, he played guitar with the Weavers and was a pioneer in synthesizers and electronic music. With his friend Paul Beaver, Bernie contributed to the sounds of Rosemary's Baby, Apocalypse Now, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and many other movies and TV shows. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Whether bloggers are writing to change the world or just discussing a bad breakup, they may get an extra boost of motivation when they cozy up to a few statistics that indicate just how many people are listening in. That's according to Carmen Stavrasitu who is an associate professor at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Stavrasitu's research of over 300 women bloggers indicates that statistics about hit counts and comments are powerful ways to encourage a blogger. In fact, the sheer numbers of visits to a blog and to the comment sections are the strongest predictors of just which women will keep blogging. Stavrasitu's research team adds that there's a difference between the number of comments and the number of hits to any website. They say the number of comments is an indicator of connection, whereas traffic statistics tally influence. The comments were intriguing to Stavrasitu, who observes that since most bloggers are not paid, the feeling of connection and empowerment provided by comments and hit counts may explain why blogging is so popular. Her research has just been published in the Journal of Computer-Mediated Communication. A healthy baby's birth weight ranges from 5.5 to 10 pounds. Led by Christine Valhod of the University of Oslo, researchers looked at what that span of 4.5 pounds may say about brain development in children and adolescents. They found that compared to smaller newborns, heavier infants developed more brain volume and more surface area in some brain regions. Scientists know that a baby's birth weight tells a lot about the mother's health during pregnancy. Developmental complications can occur due to premature birth or when babies are born dangerously underweight. Adult behavioral problems, including ADHD and schizophrenia, are also linked to fetal size. Consider normal birth weights. A proud mother cuddling her healthy newborn might say, She's already such a big girl, or he's much smaller than his brother was. But can healthy birth weight tell us something more than just big or small? Vahud and her team think it can. Using data from multi-site pediatric studies conducted in the U.S., the team compared birth weights and brain imaging scans for 228 children and adolescents. Results show larger newborns develop greater total brain volume and greater surface area in regions used for cognitive control processes. Digging deeper, they compared birth weights with scores on a cognitive test. Is healthy birth weight linked to cognition later in life? Apparently not, but studying healthy variations in birth weight may reveal more about both normal and pathological brain development. This study was published yesterday in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Using two orbiting telescopes and a fortuitous alignment across the universe— 
astronomers have identified what may be the youngest, most distant galaxy ever discovered. The galaxy, rather mundanely named MACS 0647-JD, was observed with two of NASA's great observatories, the Hubble Space Telescope and the Spitzer Space Telescope, which allowed astronomers to get data about the galaxy across a wide range of wavelengths from the near-ultraviolet to the infrared. But even with all that telescopic firepower, these observations could not have been made if not for the fact that the light from the galaxy was split into three images and greatly magnified when the light passed by a large cluster of galaxies along the way from there to here. The cluster created what is called a gravitational lens that made the image of the galaxy bright enough for the telescopes to detect. And exactly how far is this record-breaking galaxy? The researchers estimate it has a redshift of 11. You can imagine a group of astronomers sitting around a room saying, it goes to 11. But what does that mean? Redshift is the effect where the apparent color of objects gets redder the faster they move away from you, like the Doppler shift that you hear from an ambulance when it's moving away. And because of the expansion of the universe, the more distant an object is, the faster it is moving away from you. So the redder it looks, meaning it has a larger redshift. This galaxy is so far away that the light that we see shows how the galaxy looked 13.3 billion years ago. In other words, when the universe was only 3% of its present age. The lead author of the paper describing the analysis and results is Dan Coe of the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. The paper will be published in the December 20th issue of the Astrophysical Journal. Dr. Bertie Krauss is a pioneer in studying ecology using sound. His interest is in the whole soundscape, how animals fill all the niches through space and time. It's a powerful tool for assessing the health of ecosystems. Welcome to How on Earth, Bernie. Thank you. You recognize that music, I'm sure. Yes, it's a, it's a piece that was done 25 years ago, if you can imagine, and it's all animal sounds. All the uh, percussion are fish, and all of the other sounds are uh, animals as well. We, uh, it, was our first ex- it was our first attempt at actually sampling a whole um, uh, palette of material and then um, making music out of it. Really? Every, every one of those sounds is, uh, is an animal sound? That is correct. Well, you know, I was fooled by that. I actually read that in the liner notes, I think. And I, then I listened to it, and I thought, well, I must have misread that. Uh, but no, 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 no. It was an album called Gorillas in the Mix. And uh, that, that was a tune called um, uh, Trout from Ipanema. Very cool stuff. You yeah. you were a successful musician in California in the sixties and seventies, uh, and then you uh, you know started exploring electronic music. You were still successful, <laughs> as we just heard. Um, 
it, but you became interested in the sounds of nature. Can you share with us why you decided to devote your life to sound? Well, I've always, um, uh, first of all, I have uh, very bad eyesight, so my world is pretty much informed by what I hear. And and I you know I see the world through the lens of uh, of um, uh, an audio lens rather than a, a visual one, and uh, I graduated from music to natural sound when uh, my late uh, music partner Paul Beaver and I were doing an album for Warner Brothers called In a Wild Sanctuary, and um, it was um, the album w- was begun in 1968 and it required that um, we go into the field and record natural sounds. Paul wouldn't do it, and I was left with that task. And just about that time, the technology was uh, small enough and light enough so that we could carry portable equipment into the field with us. And I went north of San Francisco, a place called Muir Woods, just across the bridge from uh, from uh, the city, and uh, turned on the recorder one October afternoon and uh it changed my life the sounds that were coming through those earphones uh and uh through the uh, stereo microphones that i had uh just was so gorgeous and and so relaxing that it just i just stood there you know um amazed by how powerful uh just the ambience was itself and decided that anything that could strike me that um, with that kind of an impact, uh, really uh, deserved some attention, and I began to pay more and more attention to it as time went on. And finally, in 1979, I went back to school. I quit music um, after doing Apocalypse Now, and uh, went back to school. Got my PhD in bioacoustics, and I've been working in the field ever since. Uh, bioacoustics was a pretty young field in those days. You... Yeah, when I got when I got my PhD, there were only five or six people who had their PhD in bioacoustics. Now there's there are hundreds, probably close to six, seven hundred. In your new book, The Great Animal Orchestra, you talk about your most memorable musical lesson at Lake Wallowa in Oregon. Can you take us back to that trip and tell us what lesson you learned? Well, sure. Um, I was working with uh, a Nez Perce group um, in Idaho. And one of the elders uh, said to me, he said, uh, you, you said you were a musician. I said, yeah, I was a musician. He says, you, don't, you guys don't know anything about music. I thought to myself, well, that's a challenge. And I said, well, do you want to show us what you mean? And he said, sure. He said, come with me in the morning, and I'm, I'll, I'll take you to a place, and I'll show you about music. And so we drove down, um, we drove down to a place called Lake Wallawa, which is uh, south of Lewiston uh, by some miles. It's in the northwest corner of, uh, I'm sorry, in the northeast corner of Oregon. And we drove down there. It was a several-hour drive, and it was very, very cold. We sat outside for um, probably half an hour waiting for something to happen at where a stream comes into the lake. And uh, the stream um, uh, follows the route of this uh, um, valley um, at the south end of the lake. And... um, we waited for a while, and it was really freezing. And finally, um, a big wind came up, and there was the sound of this huge, it sounded like a pipe organ is what it sounded like. We couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And our friend, our Nesper's friend, came up to us and said, you know, kind of led us by the hand to the edge of the of the stream. And sure enough, 
there were a number of reeds that were broken off in different at different lengths, and as the wind blew over the top of the, of the reeds, um, the hollowed out reeds, it caused them, it, uh, to, excited them into sound, uh, just like uh, blowing a whistle, you know, and you blow over the top of it or blowing into a bottle to create sound. And uh, sh- and sure enough, the um, the soundscape was transformed at that moment by this huge uh, sound of a pipe organ. And then he went into the, um, walked into the water and, and uh, cut off a length of reed and drilled some holes in it and began to play. And he said, this is where we got our music and this is where you got yours too. That was my, that was the most important music lesson I ever had. And that music comes from the natural world. And I've, what I've done is, in, in this book, uh, The Great Animal Orchestra, I've expanded on that, and uh, uh, in in the sense that uh, I'm demonstrating the connection between how animals who vocalize taught us literally to dance and sing. You know, human music, uh, our formal music, is is different now than the sounds of nature. Have we lost anything? And not really, because you know, from the collective and structured animal voices that came from the habitats we once lived in. Uh, we picked out and imitated the rhythms, the melodies, and the arrangements of sound as we heard them. We still do that today. And because humans are such great mimics, we incorporated these natural gifts into our musical expression, which in turn evolved into language. So all, this organization of sound is seminal to what we still do today. We still arrange horns and, uh, and violins and, and trumpets and, and um, I'm sorry, and clarinets and, and uh, basses in a very logical format so that each of those voices can be heard. Well, we learned that from the animal world, because if animals are vocalizing in a given habitat, each uh, species has to vocalize in a way with its own bandwidth so that it can be heard unmasked. Otherwise, it's not going to thrive, especially if its voice depends, uh, if if its livelihood depends uh, largely on its voice. Hi, Bernie. This is Joel here. I I was just curious, um, over your years of listening to these soundscapes, uh, what changes have you noticed? Well, there are a lot of changes. Uh, first of all, um, uh, in the I've been recording now almost for forty five years, and in that time, the in many many habitats that have uh, been impacted by human endeavor whether it's resource extraction or global warming or uh, all kinds of other issues as well. Um, uh, there's been a huge change in density and diversity, not, <clears throat> not to mention the fact that, the, um, uh, that, that spring occurs almost two weeks earlier in most parts of, uh, of the American West in North America uh, and also um, uh, other parts of the world as well. The only place where I haven't seen that kind of radical change is in some tropical rainforests. People don't people don't realize that rainforests go all the way from the uh, the equator all the way up to Alaska or way down south in, in Central and Latin America, but um, uh, but they do. And but in tropical rainforests, it's pr- there are still a few areas left where you can hear things unimpeded and unchanged uh, by human endeavor, but they're rare. 
and they're becoming ever more rare now. When I began, uh, I could record for, you know, maybe 10 hours and get one hour of usable material. Now it takes me hundreds of hours to get one hour of usable material. And on top of that, uh, the other thing that uh, I talk about now is that I have 4,500 hours of soundscapes in my library, marine and terrestrial. And of that 4,500 hours, fully 50% of it comes from habitats where you can no longer hear any of the natural sounds. Have you found that you've returned to the same places uh, year after year and have recorded what changes have occurred and what sounds as a function of what development has occurred in the area? Yes, I have. Uh, every place from Wyoming to California, and um, in particular, and the changes are radical. And uh, in, in, I, it, they're not really fully understood yet because we really uh, the study of soundscapes and using soundscape ecology as a, as a measure of um, of our effect in any way is relatively new. Um, the word soundscape just came into the lexicon in 1977 by Canadian uh, composer and naturalist um, Murray Schaefer in his book Tuning of the World. So between 1977 and now and the way sounds have been used, um, uh, you know, it's, we're just beginning to see how valuable the idea of using soundscapes as a component of, um, of evaluation is, is very new. And um, uh, don't forget, most of the recording that we've done has been with a kind of single species recording, the abstraction of, uh, of the natural world, deconstructing it, fragmenting it. And what happens is when you do that, when you record the natural sounds, and there are many collections, large collections, that are just based on this whole idea of recording single individual birds or mammals or frogs. And when you do this, um, you fragment the natural world soundscape into incoherence because these things have been taken out of context. And it's like listening to a, a symphony piece, but just listening to one instrument. Exactly right. I mean, imagine Beethoven's fifth and taking one violin player out of the first violin section and playing his or her part and trying to understand what the symphony's about. Well, let's uh, listen to one of those soundscapes. Uh, we have here something uh, that you recorded, the don a donk horse piece. So, Bernie, is that a is that a healthy ecosystem that we're hearing there? Uh, I think that's a dawn chorus from Chernobyl, uh, and uh, you can hear the cuckoo in the background. And uh, Chernobyl is a is an environment which, uh, uh, in the mid 1980s, if uh, you remember, was the uh, was the big explosion at Chernobyl and the uh, nuclear plant, and um, it's been uninhabited for all that time to now, and uh, a colleague of mine, it actually isn't my recording, a colleague of mine by the name of Peter Kuzak was uh, from the U.K., was, um, uh, had spent some time there in 2006 and recorded that dawn chorus to show how sometimes habitats will revitalize themselves when humans aren't around. 
And really, it's a remarkable place because there, I, one doesn't know what kind of mutations have happened with the critters yet. But the the uh, the soundscape certainly has returned somewhat, and uh, that's a perfect example of um, of the, that um, material. You know, it's interesting because there is a uh, there's a place near you that that you've gone to year after year that has that was logged uh, what some twenty years ago. And uh, have the sound has the sound returned to that place, or has there just been a, a permanent change that the eye can't see? No, we went into a place called Lincoln Meadow, which is about a four and a half hour drive from San Francisco to the east in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And um, at Lincoln Meadow in 1988, uh, a logging company was uh, told us they were going to do selective logging, and, there, and that there would be no impact. Now, industry always tells us that there's going to be no impact, right? And we said, okay, fine, let us record the soundscape before you do this. And uh, so we went in and recorded in June of 1988. And then they logged all that summer after we recorded. And uh, um, we came back in 1989 uh, to see whether or not the soundscape had changed and whether they were telling the truth. And the difference between density and diversity in 1988 and 1989 and 15 years subsequent that we've gone up there and recorded uh, is astonishing. It will take your breath away because it is so quiet and so sparse now in relationship to what the uh, what it was at one point, uh, during the, certainly during the early 80s when I first started recording there. And what it shows is when you take a look at, when you, when you photograph the habitat, and you uh, or look at it to the human eye, which really deceives us. The um, the place looks absolutely pristine and undisturbed, but to the ear, it tells a very different story. And I often say that you know, while a picture is maybe worth a thousand words, uh, a soundscape is worth a thousand pictures. Uh, there's a chapter in your book called A Code of Hope. We've only got about a minute left, but. What, what hope is there? Human sound is everywhere. I go to the zoo and I don't hear any animals. All I hear, you know, are the machines, Harley-Davidson's and saws. And I go to our local parks and I hear Harley-Davidson's and saws. What hope is there? Uh, well, there's hope. I, I'm not optimistic, but certainly the way we're going now. But there's hope. And the hope lies in with people just listening very carefully to their environment. And if you want to figure out a way to uh, establish that hope, go out and try to record a robin in your backyard. And by that, I don't mean the planes flying over and, and cars and buses driving by. I mean, just try to record a robin. And if you can't, then make the case that you need to hear those kinds of things because, you know, it's a narrative of place. And this may be the last chance for us to hear the voice of the divine. Thank you so much uh, for for being with us, Bernie. I wish we had another 20 minutes to an hour to talk with you. You have so many fascinating stories. We can do that. Let's do that. Okay. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Dr. Bernie Krauss is a pioneer in studying ecology using sound. His interest is in the whole soundscape, how animals fill all the niches through time and space. It's a powerful tool for assessing the health of ecosystems. His new book is called The Great Animal Orchestra. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. 
we'd like to introduce a new member of the How on Earth team. Rebba Kamal is a public health student at the University of Colorado, Denver, and also is working with Colorado Public News. Welcome to the team.